We're back, back for the 36th episode of the Letterman Jacket Podcast. I'm Eli Letterman, sellout crowd's Oklahoma beat writer. Today, we're going to dive into Garen Hatchett's commitment from Washington, a little OU hoops, the NIL storm hitting Tennessee, and all that before we dive into a conversation with Ben Portnoy, the Sports Business Journal, on his latest story, Nick Saban's Rising Tide, that helps explain how Nick Saban, over the course of his career, changed more than just the sport of college football, but really the business of it with tentacles everywhere, including Norman, Oklahoma. Before we get started, a word from our sponsors, the people who make the Letterman Jacket possible. That's Two Fellas Movers, the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, Oklahoma Ford Dealers, Mid First Bank, and of course, our friends at Fire Lake, our trusted supporters of the Letterman Jacket. The Fire Lake Firelight Balloon Fest is coming in August. This annual event is one of the best balloon festivals in the country. And it now has an app. Download the Balloon Fest app in the Apple Store or the Google Play Store. All right, 36th episode of Letterman Jacket. Who wore 36 at the University of Oklahoma famously? Steve Owens. Born in Gore, Oklahoma, raised in Miami. Two-time All-Big 12 selection. All-time leading scorer in touchdowns in program history until DeMarco Murray broke that record in 2010, I want to say. And, of course... Steve Owens, the Sooners' second Heisman Trophy winner, spent five seasons with the Detroit Lions, later had a short run as the uh, Sooners' athletic director. My favorite Steve Owens story, though, came in 2013. Who remembers the Harlem Shake? He was a part of the Sooners' Harlem Shake video. You can see him if you go find it. He is uh, wiping down his statue in Heisman Park uh, and then finds himself in a a hula skirt and a whole thing, and uh, he's got some fond memories of that. So Steve Owens, the 30, number 36 on the 36th episode of the Letterman Jacket. So what's going on around Norman? I think the big football news this week uh, starts and ends with Garen Hatchett. Washington transfer offensive lineman commits to the Sooners, had long been linked with the Sooners and, and a move uh, in this offseason. And finally, he commits. His brother Landon is staying at, at Washington, but Garen Hatchett uh, is the fourth addition to the Sooners offensive line via the transfer portal, 13th overall. Why does this matter? Well, fact is, we know if, if you tuned in last week on the Letterman Jacket, Sam Mays and I broke it down. Not only are the Sooners replacing starters at all five positions on the offensive line, but to this point, the transfer portal additions were, were not sure things. This was not going and plucking a bunch of proven starters. You know, before Garen Hatchett, Spencer Brown looks like a guy who should come in and start for Michigan State, but Fabechi Wiwu from North Texas, Michael Tarquin from, from USC are not coming in and, and plugging in as guys that you say, all right, boom, there you go. Oklahoma's offensive line is intact. And so last week on the Letterman Jacket, there was a lot of concern from Sam Mays about the state of the Sooners' offensive line. Garen Hatchett, his arrival makes things clearer and brighter in terms of the picture of the Sooners' offensive line. He comes from uh, you know the offensive line at Washington that went to a national title game this year. Uh, that was the unit that won the Joe Moore Award. He was kind of their their utility guy, the sixth most used guy on the best offensive line in the country. Comes with 25 games under his belt, four starts this past season. Garen Hatchett, if you're thinking about your opening day right guard for the Sooners, that's probably him. And, and with his inclusion, the picture of that offensive line, if you're thinking Spencer Brown at right tackle, Troy Everett uh, at center, maybe Jacob Stexton on the left side, it's a better looking unit immediately with Garen Hatchett's arrival. So big news for the Sooners there. On the hardwood, OU Hoops, we're recording this Wednesday morning. Last night, Tuesday night in Manhattan, 
Sooners got the win they needed. Men's basketball kind of routes Kansas State. It was an ugly game. Uh, I think I termed it an argument against college basketball because if you're not much of a believer in the product relative to the NBA, this was a game where one team played relatively poorly and another team played much worse. But point is, the Sooners went to Manhattan after two straight losses last week in desperate need of just a win. They needed to leave Manhattan with a W back in the win column. They did that. Jalen Moore, career-high scoring night. He was great start to finish. Uh, Javion McCullum bounces back. That's huge for the Sooners. You're going to have concerns about the free-throw shooting, concerns about the fact that Oklahoma probably should have pulled away way earlier in that game, and it was dicey. It was a nail-biter far longer than it should have been in terms of the Sooners holding on to that lead. They leave Manhattan, most importantly, with a win. They had to UCF this weekend. You think about it, 0-2 last week. If they can get back on track with a 2-0 week, uh, before kind of a bigger run, starting with BYU visiting Norman next week, you're feeling better about things with the Sooners. The last thing I want to draw your attention to before we dive in with Ben Portnoy is the stuff going on at Tennessee. You probably saw early this week, uh, Tennessee is now under investigation once again from the NCAA. They just had sanctions laid down from the Jeremy Pruitt era over the summer. And now the NCAA is knocking on their doors in Knoxville another time. This time, it appears to be related to NIL activity. I think the big thing is uh, a trip that uh, in a private plane that involved uh, quarterback Nick, uh, Nico Maleva and uh, the biggest collective there in Knoxville. And the NCAA is coming down on, on programs. You're going to see this. I think this is going to be the offseason of, of NCAA enforcement on NIL, and we'll get to what that's even going to look like or mean. But you saw it at Florida State. We've seen it at Florida, now Tennessee. This is going to be that first rash of where the NCAA wants to enforce its NIL policies, where they are at least going to be coming at schools. Uh, and, and I think, you know, in the backdrop of a conversation that's been going on around Norman, fans looking at the portal and saying Oklahoma is not spending enough. Oklahoma doesn't have the NIL might of, you know, you look around and you see Ole Miss throwing around money and Missouri throwing around money. Uh, and and kind of folks wondering in Norman, are the Sooners doing enough? Are they? None of us can really know. It's going to be, you're, you're going to see programs across the country approaching NIL differently. There's different ways to build and win. What I can assure you is that Oklahoma is using NIL. It is making efforts. You saw last week a, a fundraising campaign through Crimson and Cream Collective. And the fact is, you know, Michigan won a national title this year. They built differently than, than other programs. Uh, Alabama and Georgia are going to build differently. Oklahoma and Brent Venables are going to build differently, and they're going to employ NIL, but I, I don't think you're going to see the Sooners blowing the doors off the way perhaps uh, an Ole Miss or Missouri has this offseason, and, and that's maybe going to be frustrating uh, when, when the flurry of transfer news comes in January. But at the same time, there's not one, just one size fits all the way to win in college football. And off of that, there's what schools like Tennessee, Florida State, Florida, surely more in the future are going to be dealing with in terms of uh, NCAA investigation. I think, you know, to the best of my knowledge, uh, you know, Oklahoma has handled NIL carefully. And, uh, and, and while that might be short-term frustration on, on who the Sooners can bring in, there is also then that piece of, uh, of not dealing with this. And, and a separate topic is, is how much the NCAA can really enforce. You can see Tennessee is already fighting fighting this. And I, I think, you know, the NCAA is going to lose these battles more often than not enforcing its own NIL policies. But the fact is, uh, the NIL grass, so to speak, is not always greener when it comes to where schools are, what they're spending and how they're doing it. Uh, because if you're a Tennessee fan, 
right now, you've got a big old headache. And if you're a Tennessee administrator, you've got a big old headache with the NCAA, even if Tennessee may well come out of this okay. Um, there are multiple sides. There's some thorns that come with NIL. And uh, and again, it's not one size fits all, and, and Oklahoma will fit in there where they do. But with that, take us now to our conversation with Ben Portnoy, the Sports Business Journal, on his story, Nick Saban's Rising Tide. All right, Ben, thank you for making you. I think you're our first return uh, guest on the Letterman Jacket outside the Sellout Crowd Network. So congrats on that distinction. Bring it to the bosses. Maybe uh, raise at SBJ for for renewed appearances on a college football podcast in Oklahoma. I don't know if that'll do it for you, but where are we speaking to you from today? I was going to say, I don't know who I fooled to uh, get back on here again, but uh, no, calling in from Columbia, South Carolina, nice and nice and pretty outside. It's, it's a little sunny. Might, might even be able to hit some golf balls at some point this week. So we're, uh, we're getting some good, nice winter weather here in Columbia. I envy that all the time, your ability to play golf 12 <laughs> months a year. Uh, you're wrapping up like a pretty crazy run. I mean, there's the football season and then there's both, you know, the postseason and bowl season. You were at the national championship. Am I wrong there? Were you there? Yep, you were the national yep. title game and then you were straight to the coaches, con- uh, the NCAA convention. You've been running around and at the time of year where everyone's winding down, you came out last week uh, with this story on Nick Saban. Nick Saban's Rising Tide at Sports Business Journal. Folks, go find it. Um and it was uh, there was an endless stream of Nick Saban stories the last three weeks. Uh, but with this one, you took a, a sports businessy angle and, and a different angle on Nick Saban, looking at really the, the business impact on or that he's had on, on the sport of college football. Because the fact is, we're in a completely different world from when he took over at Alabama in 2007. And a lot of it, a lot of what you see around college football, if you're an Oklahoma fan and you see analysts become coordinators Seth Luttrell uh you see coaching salaries you know a couple weeks ago we we learned what OU's coaches will be making in their first season in the SEC all this stuff that is just part of the game now uh a lot of it stems from Tuscaloosa Alabama and Nick Saban so I wanted to bring you on to talk about this story from the jump what was the genesis for you um perhaps it was an assignment from an editor saying we need something on Nick Saban uh, but for you getting started with, with this piece, what were you looking to find? Yeah, I think that, you know, like anything, we're going to write with something that has a little bit more of a businessy tie than, than some of the other f- outlets and folks that are writing about Nick Saban. But I think, too, you know, for me, and I think you can sort of echo this as a writer, like one of the hard things about writing about someone like Nick Saban is it's like writing about Michael Jordan, right? Like there's so many things that have been written. There's only so many interesting or unique things that have been written. Um, I think, you know, looking at it through a business lens probably helps me a little bit on something like this for sure. Um, you know, it's a little bit less human interesty, um, I would say, but you know, for me, I kind of just, I kind of started with two ideas and one was, okay, what's the impact that Saban's had on the coaching business, uh, as far as like the actual business of it, the finances of it, et cetera. Uh, and then how many people who became athletic directors worked around Saban in some capacity? Uh, and I kind of ended up marrying the two a little bit, I would say, with this story, uh, I think, over over the course of the writing process. But uh, I think it's ended up being a cool look at sort of you look at the impact of college of Nick Saban on college sports, college football in particular. Um, it's a lot more far reaching than just, you know, hiring a bunch of guys who went on to head coaching jobs. I think there's there's a little bit of a deeper impact there. And I think that that's kind of what I wanted to get at here. 
and I think I mean you, you hit it, and and with the the story, this story of Nick Saban is that if you're a fan of any of the 133 FBS football programs, whether it's Oklahoma, I mean, it, you know, there's scale here, but or or Akron or uh, you know Toledo, I don't know if Akron's even one of the FBS schools. I don't think they are. Uh, but I'm just thinking about the Ohio's. But point being, you know, a small MAC school to uh, to Oklahoma to Texas and and Alabama and across the SEC. All this stuff that's just become normal, whether it's coaching salaries that are north of $10 million or, or these massive staffs of, of analysts. And again, Brent Venables has them. Billy Napier seems to have multiple staffs of analysts. He could staff probably several Mac programs with all his staff. Um, but a lot of this, and Billy Napier, that's a, a Saban guy, but uh, the, so much of the sport is a reflection now of, of what Nick Saban carved over those, you know, 15, 16 years. Where did you? Where, where were you? Maybe most surprised in your reporting on this story of of what you learned and and where the tentacles really turned back to Tuscaloosa and Nick Saban. I think the analyst role was something that I was really fascinated by, honestly, just because I think that you know having gotten to know a few folks that have been in those roles at certain places and things like that, I just think it's a really fascinating role and one that's probably not to say undercovered, but I think it's probably not understood in a great way of just like, what do these people do? And that you've got people who are somewhere between, uh, they're not quite an on-field assistant coach, but they're not really a graduate assistant. It's it's closer to an on-field coach than a graduate assistant, but there's it's sort of a gray area and what they're allowed to do, what they operate in, how they exist, uh, things like that. So I would say that when you look at that, um, you know, I was kind of trying to look and I had I, I had kind of known that there was at least a, some kind of genesis of that role from Tuscaloosa and I wasn't sure where. So, you know, it's funny. I kind of did the reporter thing where I started literally went back as far as I could in Alabama media guides and tried to find the first people who were listed as analysts uh, in the media guides on staff. And that was more challenging than you would probably think, but it was, uh, took it took a little bit of time, but um, you know, looking through old photocopies and things like that. But uh, you know, I found in, I, I guess it was 2010 or 2011, that that was kind of the first time that anyone had been um, listed in those roles. And, you know, Joe Judge, who's the former New York Giants head coach, had uh, happened to be one of those people. And, and, you know, I'd known Joe a little bit from some other things and some other stories I'd worked with him on, uh, gave him a call. And we had a really cool conversation kind of about the genesis of the, the, the role and how it started and how he functionally became the first analyst or quote unquote analyst in college football. And now, I mean, speak to the scale of analysts. They're everywhere. Every program. How many, if you had to guess, how many analysts do you think are on most major college football staffs for, for giving folks some, some sense? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a scale thing. I think it varies, right? Like there's, you know, some G5 schools and, and smaller are going to have, you know, three or four or whatever it is. You know, an SEC school or a Power 5 school is probably going to have anywhere from, you know, four to eight somewhere in there right um give or take so i think that you know and looking at it like i looked through at least from the the coaching staffs that i could find from the 2022 season every single uh school in the sec had an analyst listed on their roster in some capacity um and i think that that again it sort of talks to kind of the proliferation of nick saban's impact on the sport right like this was a thing that i sort of alluded to it but you know joe judge i mentioned it in the story that he was working at Tuscaloosa as a graduate assistant. His wife was was teaching on the side and sort of making money for them on the side while Joe was working, you know, not necessarily for free, but functionally for free as a GA. Uh, 
at Alabama and they had two kids, they had a third on the way and it just like, wasn't really sustainable. And Joe basically needed to either get a promotion or find another job or something like that. And, you know, that eventually evolved into uh, Saban and, and the folks on the compliance staff at Alabama and uh, making him and a couple other folks that, that were graduate assistants at the time uh, analysts. And it was a way for them to pay them basically, you know, instead of being a GA where you go to class and you've got an athletic scholarship and things like that, it was a chance to, you know, basically whatever they would pay for an athletic scholarship, however many, you know, a couple tens of thousands of dollars, uh, turn that into a salary. And so that's, you know, that's how it started. It's obviously changed kind of like you mentioned in your actual question, like a guy like Seth Luttrell is obviously a very different example, right? Uh, South Carolina has its former offensive line coach on staff as an analyst, and he's making, you know, well into the six figures. So it's, it's a very different thing and it's evolved uh, a lot. Um, from school to school, but I think that that's, you know, one of those small impacts that's kind of behind the curtain a little bit, um, but now exists, you know, throughout college football. Yeah, I think, I mean, they, these analyst roles can, can mean different things. I mean, they can be for young up and comers, guys that perhaps, you know, a, a, a staff would lose to a, you know, let, let's say you're Alabama, maybe Joe Judge would have gone and, and taken a, a smaller school assistant role. Instead, you keep quality in your building. The flip side of that, I think Nick Saban kind of became famous for it with his head coaching rehab. Um, but the tentacles of that are everywhere. Oklahoma, you want to talk about the South Luttrell example, uh, parts ways at North Texas in 2022, spends 2023 on staff with the Sooners in an analyst role. Matt Wells, former Texas Tech coach, did that for two seasons too. And by the end of it, those guys, you know, one, Matt Wells is headed to Kansas State where he's going to be calling plays. And then Seth Luttrell, who I can tell you this, from the moment he got here, whatever speculation there was around Jeff Levy, whether it was uh, leaving for a head coaching job or the point in the season where folks certainly around Norman were just wanting them to move on from Jeff Levy, Seth Luttrell was the name that that always came up. And so it's a built-in advantage for these programs of either short-term, you've got former head coaches or really experienced assistant-level guys who are on your staff in these not on field capacities, but they're in your building. Um, but they can be sort of the breeding ground of, of the future of your program of keeping uh, folks in your in your program. We hear so much about how continuity matters. Uh, it helped, you know, Oklahoma having Seth Luttrell in their building for a year rather than calling him up a year later. It wasn't necessarily I can't imagine they plotted it out that way. But it's a nice thing when it when it comes to it. You've got people who've been in your building uh, in these really unique roles that, as you point out, began in, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. You also mentioned the salaries and coaching salaries for a lot of reasons have just skyrocketed. Uh, footnote one, see Jimmy Sexton. Uh, but footnote <laughs> well said. somewhere else is see, you know, how Nick Saban um, really set the bar there. Uh, you know, he always used to joke in some of this being his analyst stuff or how he developed coaches, but he, he made a lot of millionaires, uh, Nick Saban. But as it relates to, you know, coaching figures that around, you know, 0708, I think Bob Stoops was making about $4 million. I think Nick Saban was around there when he got to Alabama and he leaves. What was he making in his final year in Tuscaloosa, Nick Saban? Uh, over 10, it might have been over 11. It was in that range, though. And I think they're only going to keep rising. Or the, the, the very, very elite are all going to be in those double figure, those, I guess, what, right. eight figure range. Um, yeah. which is absurd in terms of just the growth and where we've gotten to. And it's because these are all the most coveted jobs in the sport and all that. But how, how do you tie Nick Saban in from 2008, you know, the best, the elite coaches being paid 4 million and that tripling over about 
you know, a decade and a half? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of factors. I mean, you mentioned it, obviously. Jimmy Sexton's done a really good job uh, getting his clients paid for sure over over his time. But I, I do think that you look at the way that money's flowed into the sport, that's a big part of it. I think that, um, you know, there's other pieces to what's going on as far as, um, you know, what and how people are being paid uh, over time. I think that like, look, Nick Saban was going to get re-upped over time as he won national titles and things like that. Um, he was going to, uh, and because of that, you see the coaching market sort of reset over time, right? Like over time, his contract was going to go up and up and up as those contracts came in and, and were sort of changed over that span. Um, the other part of it too is the media rights money that comes into the sport, right? Like schools are bringing in more money than they had been previously. And I think that you tie all those things together and you see why Saban was making so much more money than he uh than he was at the beginning of the, his tenure in Alabama, and then also others in the sport as well. And as as far as, I mean, resetting the market, I guess it's Jimmy Sexton. I guess it's all that money. Um, but he probably also fell into a new era, right, of, of the uber elite coach, the guy you always had to keep paying. And I, I think a lot followed. There's however many jobs we look at across the country where you say, you know, that is a, not only is it a, a $10 million job or an eight, nine, you know, Kirby smart, look at that. Dan Landings turned it into that Texas A&M for other reasons, perhaps it's become one of those jobs, but you know, Michigan, Ohio Sarkeesian, State. Sarkeesian's probably in that yeah. realm, right? Um, and that is at least in part because everyone, people follow the leader in college sports. We know that we see it everywhere, uh, for better and worse. Uh, and, and it started there in Tuscaloosa, the, the, other bit because i think you kind of hit on three tenets in this store you hit on analysts you hit on coaching pay and then facilities in there and then i want your thoughts on ad's because you're always good on on administration stuff but facilities i think fans sit and watch and you it seems like every three years you're hearing about a brand new facility ou is in some part of the process you know last spring they were looking at architects for like 175 million dollar facility and you look at the switzer center now which opened in 2017 2018 and you would wonder what what's wrong with that? Like that, that's 25. But then you, you talk to people and you hear that, well, it's all about keeping up with the times, kind of keeping up with the Joneses, the whole thing. Where did facilities come in to the way that, that Nick Saban and Alabama evolved things over his time there? Yeah. You know, I think on that front, I think that that really started at LSU even prior to his time at Alabama and with the dolphins and all of that. Um, you know, I, I hadn't realized this and maybe it was an oversight on my end, but like, I didn't realize that LSU's football operations center was, if not one of the first, you know, among the first, you know, football ops centers, as far as what we see, as far as, uh, you know, power five for the most part, but most yeah. places have some kind of offices or things like that for their football staffs, um, uh, in part because they're so big, which is another saving, saving trade. So really it's all Nick Saban's fault, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that, that was something that he kind of spearheaded at LSU and said, you know, I want to put everyone under one roof. He basically got tired of busing people uh, back and forth to the stadium, to the locker rooms, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, I was talking to Dan Radakovich, who's the AD at Miami now. Uh, and he and was at Clemson previously during their runs to the national titles. And, and Dan worked at LSU pretty closely with Saban during uh, his time coming up. And, uh, you know, one of the things he mentioned was that football ops center, that that was something that Nick basically said, like, hey, like, I got to get everyone under one roof. Like, what are we doing here as far as moving guys back and forth between locker room, stadium, things like that? And I think the LSU's football ops center was built and actually opened in like 2006. So a little bit after Saban left for the Dolphins. Mm -hmm. But, um, 
you know, the point is that that was something that he started. And obviously you see it now. So many places across the country are building these sort of swanky new offices for their football staffs and, and locker rooms and things like that. So it's, uh, it's another piece of just sort of the like college football at large, the business of college football and, and where these things have gone. And, uh, you know, again, Nick Saban has, has his tentacles kind of on all of it. Well, I guess that's, you know, it, professionalization comes with a, a lot of weight when we're talking about college athletics, especially nowadays. Look at Congress, look at the courts, all that. But lowercase p, professionalization, that's kind of what Nick Saban brought. And ironically, he's the coach, one of the many college coaches who couldn't cut it in the pros or didn't spend a whole lot of time as a head coach and the pros doing finding the success they found in college. But um, taking this business, what it what it really is and what it certainly became more and more over his time. Uh, certainly at Alabama, I guess it started at LSU as well, of saying, you know, looking at things differently and saying, why are we in a, in a sport where competitive edge and every little advantage matters, uh, finding things that just simply made sense, putting a whole football ops department, building a football ops department, putting it under the same roof, building facilities and, and building on those facilities, all of it, that lowercase professionalization of college football that we've absolutely seen that feels like it's only more and more progressing that way. Well, you know, we're not even talking yet about uh, athletes as employees or revenue sharing, all the things that will really mean professionalization, but the small things. College sports has become professional, become the business that it is in Nick Saban's time. And I, I think there's no way you can look at him and look at that era and not tie the two things together, as you did in this story. Closing out. What did you feel like you learned at the end of all this? I know you spent a lot of time kind of talking to administrators, people who worked around Nick Saban. Um, he produced, as you pointed out, a lot of ADs and administrators, the people who make this sport go. And so if you want to talk about tentacles, they're, they're everywhere. They're across the country, and they're kind of working in the Saban way. But what, what was it that, that you came away with from this story that you didn't know beforehand? You know, I think like, again, you talk a lot about the lasting impact of Saban on, on college football and like you see it with the wins and losses, right? You see it with the statues outside of Brian Denny and all, and all of those things. But I do think that there's something with Nick Saban that I think is truly larger than just, you know, one school, one university, one team, all of those things. And, and I think that that's what I took away, I think, is that there's such an impact in so many different ways, right? And, and some of them are tangible and some of them aren't. But I do think that, you know, you talk to athletic directors about how they go about handling things within their own departments. Like I was talking to Jeff Purinton at Arkansas State, who worked with Saban for about 10, 12 years uh, for, at Alabama. And he said, you know, he still quotes Saban sometimes during staff meetings and things like that. And that's an athletic director. So I think like, you know, we talk a lot about it with coaches and sort of the impact he's had on that front. But I do think that there's an impact beyond just the coaching ranks and the salaries and things like that. Like there's a there's a piece on the administrative side as well that I think is really interesting uh, and really different. And I think that, again, there are other coaches that have had huge impacts on the sport and, and, and you know, other folks that have made changes and dramatically changed how things operate. But I do think that you know, when you talk about the last 20, 25 years of college football, like. Nick Saban is really a reason that we see college football exist in a lot of the ways that it does in the modern era, you know, all of the craziness in college sports, notwithstanding. And I think that, uh, you know, you look at just the structure of college football, really like the structure of programs, the way that they're run, like that is a Nick Saban uh, sort of impact. And I think that that's the, that those are kind of the biggest things that I took away at least. 
And I, I think the other bit here, because it, it's impossible to separate the story of college football over those 25 years that like you talk about without Nick Saban. I think also people probably have, have what they think of Nick Saban or what they think of this kind of scary, stern dude. I got to imagine talking to those ADs, particularly those people who work with him in that capacity, probably saw a different side on Nick Saban. Were there any stories that, that you picked up in, in this re- reporting process that, that stuck with you? Yeah, there were a few. Uh, you know, Jeff Pierrenton at Arkansas State is one that I mentioned. He he played a lot of golf with Saban uh, during during his time at Alabama, and Saban's a Saban's a good golfer now. So like, I think uh, you know, folks, folks, there's a lot of stories about Saban on the golf course, but hearing about playing with Nick on on off days and things like that during the summer when he could, uh, that was always fun. I think that uh, you know, you I, I kind of mentioned some of the the uh, the impact that Joe Judge had on on Saban. He mentioned the one thing that got left on the cutting room floor a little bit, but Joe mentioned the interview that he had with Saban uh, when he was interviewing for the job. He was working as a, I believe, a linebackers coach at Birmingham Southern and had graduated from Mississippi State, had worked on Sylvester Croom's staff for a little bit, uh, but was kind of in between things uh, when Saban called him. And he went into his interview and he said that, you know, Saban kind of was almost messy. He had him draw some stuff up on the board uh, as far as how he would teach something or coach something. And Saban basically started messing with him um, and asking like crazy questions and off the wall things and just like trying to screw him up basically and see how he would handle it. Uh, and he handled it. All right. He obviously got hired <laughs> and so on and so forth. But uh, I think that uh, there's a lot of folks with a lot of really cool stories like that of just, you know, interviewing with Saban or, or, you know, just being around him and talking to him and seeing, you know, a little bit that's that we don't see at the podium. And I think that that's uh, that's a really cool thing. And obviously another big, big piece of this. Well, as I said, and as you pointed out, that the tapestry on Nick Saban is far and wide, but I think you really did, a, you, you hit the nail on the head in, in a really narrow way with this story on, on the business end of his impact and the way it's, it's, uh, it's spread across the sport. So folks, if you haven't yet, Nick Saban's Rising Tide, Ben Portnoy at Sports Business Journal, go, go check it out. And Ben, what, uh, what can you tell the folks about what you're going to be doing the next like eight months? We have so much time until college football <laughs> is back. What do you do to pass that time? It's so funny. Like I was thinking about that the other uh, today, actually like, Oh, how am I going to fill my calendar? And then all of a sudden I started mapping things out and I feel like I have, you know, the next three months mapped out already just because there's so much going on in college sports right now. So it's, uh, there is? it's a crazy time. Yeah, no, right. It's, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Right. But, uh, it's a crazy time. There's a lot going on, a lot, a lot happening, especially on the business side and the governance side of things. So, uh, we'll be plenty to, uh, plenty to write about and, I guess, you know, not about a month out now, maybe two months, I guess, but uh, getting ready to go to the final four here in a little bit. So that'll be, uh, that'll be fun. And then kind of go from there and there'll be uh, lots of plenty of other football things going on in between now and then. Football's year round and, and folks out there, just so you know, if uh, you want answers on how to fix the college football calendar, Ben Portnoy is your guy, hit his inbox. He can answer it. Uh, he has all the solutions. He just won't tell anybody. Um, so I, I, know they hired, I was going to say, I know they hired Rich Clark to run the CFP, but I, I'm surprised my candidacy, candidacy got lost in the mail <laughs> or something like that. I don't know what it was, but something like that. You'd bring good vibes to the committee. You know, they sit around <laughs> a lot. You hear about the snacks on offer and all that. I think you'd bring good vibes <laughs> to the committee. I, I'd like to think I'd be like the, the vibes guy on the committee, right? Like a little, little cheery, a little, little happy-go-lucky, like some of that. I think, I think we need a little bit of that in college sports right now, despite our best efforts to destroy them, right? Correct. As you were before we started recording, talking about private equity coming into college athletics, we absolutely <laughs> need more levity. Well, Ben, appreciate you joining us again. The current all-time leader in guest appearances 
on the Letterman jacket. Uh, as always, you can find us at selloutcrowd.com, at YouTube, uh, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, like, review, comment, tell us what you think. Uh, and a big thank you as we head out to our producer, Jacqueline Musgrove, to Michael Lane and Michael Martin for their work, Mike Sherman, director of content. We'll be back with more on the Letterman Jacket next week.